0: Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to find all those social media accounts, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. And while you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title. Read by yours truly. You can support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies or bucks my way. Help keep these lights on if you're watching the podcast. Help keep the podcast going. You can also purchase book plates there. So if you want to get my autograph on one of your Brian McClanahan authored books, and there are six of those, you can buy a book plate for a book or two or three or six. You can also support the show while you're at brianmcclanahan.com by clicking on that shop tab at the top of the page. You can get all my Brian McClanahan Show logo gear. Somebody just bought a clock the other day. It's awesome. It's on uh, social media. So uh, if you want to see what that looks like, bought a wall clock. But uh, you can get T-shirts, hats, all kinds of cool stuff uh, with, uh, with my logo on Maybe not hats. I don't think there's any hats, but definitely T-shirts and stickers and wall plates and stationery and all kinds of skins for your electronic devices. The best way, though, to support the Brian McClanahan Show is going to by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you enroll, you do get a free course, 10 Myths of American History. Just check your email after you got that. And, of course, those that enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I have one right now that people are getting the best deal on. So if you want to enroll, you're going to get some emails about that this week and next week and the week after until the official launch day. But you're going to start seeing the price go up, so you want to get on there and get that course while you can for the lowest price possible because once it launches, it will never be as inexpensive as it is right now. So going out to McClanahanAcademy.com and enroll, get that free course, and get your discounts. I'll have another one potentially launching September 1st. It's the second part of this class. So... Um, For those at homeschool that listen to this podcast, you want this class. It is a U.S. history survey course. It's going to cover both halves of U.S. history. And so if you're looking for a homeschool curriculum, it'll be a great option for you. Lectures, audio, video, lifetime membership, uh, tests, reading seminars. It's got a lot of stuff in it. It's my most comprehensive class to date. This first half is available now. If you are a Hanokrat Academy subscriber, that's the only people that can get it. And then eventually it's going to release uh, to those who aren't. So um, you're going to want to get this class. All right, all that said, it took a long time talking about that stuff today, but uh, it was important. So let's get into the to the uh, question of the day. In fact, this is a listener-generated episode. First, I'd like to uh, um, say that the last episode I did created a lot of lefties on uh a lot of lefty angst on the uh, social media accounts. They the uh, uh, Kevin Levine, or Levin, however he says his name, uh, didn't like it. I think it got under his skin a little bit. And when his uh, little book comes out, I'll probably review it at some point. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if he deserves the attention. But um, he didn't like it. And, of course, all his little lefty followers didn't like my comments either. But... That's good, right? So these podcasts, whether it's on YouTube or audio format, they have an impact. So if you like what I do, share this stuff around, right? Share these podcasts around, rate them, like them on YouTube, share them around. Because every now and then the person that I criticize or the person that I like gets the information and they respond back. So um, the best way to do it is to share that stuff. And again, rate this podcast on iTunes or well, I guess they call Apple Podcasts now, or wherever you listen to podcasts, rate it. The more ratings, the better. The more people will see it, and of course, download it and do what you got to do to market it around. Okay, uh, this is an interesting question. Actually, it's three questions, so I'm going to answer it the best I can because I'm not exactly certain what the person means by one of the one of the terms. But that's okay. I'll, I'll do the best I can with it. So, question. <clears throat> Might you consider doing a podcast on the origins of the modern conservative movement? Now, that's the question. I don't know which modern... If he's talking about just movement conservatism, which would be neoconservatism, if that's what he's looking at, I'll answer that, but I'll also answer the other three parts of this. It's a long question. So, in, in searching for answers on the matter, I keep coming across multiple conflicting conclusions, chiefly these three. One, the movement started with Bob Taft, and others in opposition to the New Deal and led to Goldwater and later Paul Ryan types. No conservatism existed in the party prior. So he's talking about the Republican Party here. Uh, the, the, The title is Origins of the Conservative Faction of the Republican Party. Two, the movement started with men like William McKinley and William Howard Taft and led to Bob Taft, Goldwater, and later Paul Ryan types with the terms liberal and conservative in the Republican Party having always held the same meetings as they do now. Conservatism was always Jeffersonian and liberalism was always Hamiltonian. And three, the movement started with progressives like Robert Lafayette and Hiram Johnson and led to Bob Taft, Goldwater, and later Paul Ryan types, with the terms progressive and conservative in the Republican Party swapping meanings at some point in the 1930s. Hamiltonian conservatism became more modern liberalism and Jeffersonian liberalism became modern conservatism. I do not know which, if any of these conclusions is true, in whole or in part, though I have a gut feeling that number one is, a, is too simplistic to be the conclusion, and expect that this conflict of origin stories origin stories of stems from the same kind of political indoctrination and historical ignorance as the matter of whether or not the Democratic or Republican parties flipped, which you already covered spectacularly in a podcast, one of my favorites you have done. Alright. So let's Let's discuss this, right? So if he's talking about first, let's, let's get this term modern conservative. There's, when you look at modern conservatism, if you're talking about movement conservatism, which is what you would have the Paul Ryan types. I mean, that's the, that's the position. Is it Paul Ryan? It's all these Republicans. I mean, you can basically put, lump almost any of the members of Congress, not all of them who are in the Republican Party, but almost any of the Republicans in Congress into this movement conservatism. There's very few that wouldn't apply to that. And movement conservatism, um, in many ways, is is a product of the quote-unquote Reagan revolution of 1980-81. And that's because, at that particular time, uh, you might go back to the mid-70s. Maybe you can go to the mid-70s and and Gerald Ford, because when Ford became president, and and right at the end of the Nixon administration, when Ford became president, you had a large number of the neoconservatives Move into the Republican Party, and not just in the party because they were there before, but they moved into power positions in the party. Um, and they started doing this process, right? I mean, I- I've talked to people who are in the those uh, administrations, nixon and uh, and Ford, and in the general government around that time. And they said that the that the neoconservatives were just an annoyance, really at that point. There wasn't really. Uh, a whole lot to them, um, but during the Ford administration, you started seeing a little more influence from them. They were they were you know gnats, mosquitoes. But when you get Reagan in 1980 and 81, they had taken the opportunity through things like the Heritage Foundation and other groups, where you had uh, the ability through infiltrating those organizations to kind of create this ideological underpinnings of the Republican Party. The modern Republican Party. And so when Reagan became president-elect in 1980, he was looking for people to bring into his administration. And lo and behold, you had all these neoconservatives hanging around that had gotten into some of these think tanks. That had started publishing magazines and other things. Of course, National Review, by this point, had already been uh, taken over in some ways by the neoconservatives. It wasn't entirely. You still had a lot of the paleoconservatives in the group in, in, in conservatism in the Republican Party, and there was that battle for control. So 1980, Ronald Reagan's president-elect, and he's looking for someone to appoint to the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he selects Mel Bradford. Uh, Mel Bradford is was a professor of literature at the University of Dallas, which is one of the top conservative schools in the United States. And so Bradford is tapped to take this position. The problem is you had people like Bill Bennett and some of the neocons who were also close to Reagan, and they threw a fit. The Crystals, Bill Bennett, they threw a fit over the fact that Reagan had selected this guy who said some disparaging things about Abraham Lincoln— And they didn't want someone like that to have complete control over who got grants on American history. So they threw a fit over it, and Reagan withdrew Bradford's nomination. And at that point, when that happened, you saw an exodus of paleoconservative types from the Republican Party. It didn't mean that there weren't some paleoconservatives that still supported Reagan— But you started seeing this mass exodus from the Republican Party. By the time you got to 1988, eight years later, this is when you started seeing people like Pat Buchanan make a serious run at George H.W. Bush because we had seen that that, uh, neocon lurch in the Republican Party and this movement conservatism. And of course, one of the most important things about it is foreign policy. The neoconservatives... Want to bomb everybody, and so with that with that shift in foreign policy, you really saw a transition from uh, a a old right an old right dominated party to a new right dominated party. When I say new right, I'm talking about the neoconservatives. Now that term new right, as I've talked about before on this particular podcast, when I did the podcast the episode on Michael Malice's new book, The New Right, all of this those terms fluctuate. I mean, back in in the early 80s, you had uh, people like uh, Bob Whitaker saying that the paleocons were the new right. This kind of, or a, a more populous version of the paleocons were the new right. I mean, so how do you define this? They were certainly concerned about uh, the movement, This this kind of soft new deal. Now, You could also go back and say, well, the the, the neocons have been around in domestic policy really since Eisenhower. Um, Because when Eisenhower becomes president, following up Truman, when Eisenhower assumes office um, in 1953, uh, you had what was called dynamic conservatism. And dynamic conservatism really wasn't that conservative at all. I mean, Eisenhower was a nationalist. And nationalism had always been part of, you know, I'll get into that. I mean, when you look at Lincoln, Lincoln was a nationalist, a sectional nationalist. And that's, that's an important distinction to make. Look, Daniel Webster was a sectional nationalist. Okay. So when Daniel Webster was talking about nationalism, he was really talking about New England sectionalism. But so um, I think by the time you got to um, Lincoln... It was sectional nationalism, uh, even though, I mean, all that American system stuff, I mean, the Henry Clay, uh, you could say, well, there's Southerners who believe in this stuff, and they did. But really, that those policies benefited the North more than they did anyone else, uh, maybe the West. Uh, the farmers, Western farmers, certainly saw internal improvements as a way to improve their lot because they could get their product out to market better. So you could say, well, that was part of it. But the question was, where was the authority for the general government to spend this money anyways? So. Um, it didn't really matter whether it was a good idea or not. As Monroe and Madison pointed out, yeah, I mean, this might be a good idea, but we don't have the constitutional authority to, to build roads and canals and all these things. We need an amendment to the Constitution that will do it regardless. Eisenhower's dynamic conservatism was certainly um, a, a neoconservative type approach to the New Deal because the New Deal wasn't bad, it just went too far. We just needed a softer New Deal. I mean, this is uh, when you get to the 1940s and you look at people like Wilkie and Dewey and some of these other candidates that were uh, lambs for the slaughter, um, it seems. I mean, look, Dewey wasn't necessarily. I mean, Dewey should have should have beaten Harry Truman. Uh, But you look at how he was portrayed. He was portrayed as this vast right winger when actually Dewey was more in line with, uh, say, the the neoconservatives on domestic policy. He he thought the New Deal went a little bit too far, but he just wanted a softer, gentler New Deal. Uh, He was portrayed as something else. So this actually gets into the Bob Taft stuff and the opposition to the New Deal and the conservative manifesto, and I'll talk about that. So you could say that that stuff had always been there, kind of bubbling through, but then you get to Reagan, and that's when you really see the modern neoconservatives gain hold, a stranglehold on power. Because you see, it's all about power. When Trump becomes president in 2017, he's president-elect in 16, he's looking for people to bring into the administration. And who's hanging around? Who are all the clinger-ons? These people that are in these think tanks. These people that had been in the Bush administration. These are the people that Trump goes to. Well, I need somebody to fill this position, this position. you got all these neoconservatives out there who just want government jobs. I mean, they exist for these things. They exist to go work in the general government. So uh, why not? I mean, we'll go work for the Trump administration. Even if we hate the guy, we still get power out of this. And see, we can we can direct then Trump's domestic and foreign policy. This is why the Trump administration in many ways has been such a mess. Because Trump had a position on foreign and domestic policy that in some ways was in stark contrast to what the neoconservatives want. The neoconservatives don't want immigration control. They don't want any, they don't want a, a, a wall at the border they don't want uh, a great restrictions on immigration because they believe in their heart of hearts that all these immigrants can become good Republicans because they're fleeing communism or they're fleeing oppressive governments in South America, whatever the case may be. And those people can become good Republicans because they want freedom. They want, I mean, this, this is the kind of, they want to make money. So we're going to make these people into good Republicans, not realizing that what is really happening is what they want are government handouts. They're coming to the United States because the Democrats raise their hand when they say we'll give them free health care. I mean, American citizens have to pay for this stuff with a mandate, but we're just going to give people who are not even citizens of the U.S. free health care. We're just going to give it to them. Why don't we just give everybody in the world free health care? We'll just finance everybody that needs health care in the world. If you need health care, we don't care if you're not living in the United States. We'll give you free health care because it's a human right. So why don't we just do that? We'll just become the health care provider of the world. Uh, Now, you got to get here to do it. But look, if you're in uh, take your pick country in the world and you want free health care, I mean, it's like putting up a sign. Free health care. Just come on in. The American taxpayers will pay for it and you don't need to worry about it. You want uh, free education. Hey, look, fine. Come on in the United States. We'll put you on the dole. We'll get you free education. You want government assistance. Come on in the U.S. It doesn't matter whether you're here legally or not. It doesn't matter whether you're a citizen of the United States or not. We're going to give you all of these things because all those things are a human right. And for the 50% that don't pay any taxes, any income tax, which is essentially what floats the government, I know that everybody pays some taxes, right? Some people pay sales tax. On it. But for the 50% that don't pay any income tax, that's a great idea because they're not paying any taxes. They don't care, right? So we're just going to have all these people come in here that's why the Republicans are delusional about the fact that these people will become Republicans. They're not going to. You might get 10 percent, maybe, that would be, that would become Republicans. But most are going to just want to get on the dole because where they come from, they don't have the dole. Or they had the dole and they lost the dole uh, because these governments are so corrupt. And so, you know, they, they got it. So, I mean, this is, this is the issue. These people, I mean, we, we tend to think of the people that are coming to the United States as those fleeing oppression and say, Cuba. And a lot of those people did want to become good conservatives because they saw the horrors of communism, and they didn't want that here. But that's not the case with a lot of the people coming in the United States now. They want services and goods, and they want American taxpayers to pay for these things. So the best result for that would be just to let federalism work its core, run its course there and let California become the beacon for all these people, let California have... Idiotic uh, socialized medicine and all the other things that, uh, that, and and look what they're getting. I mean, let that every person who wants those things, services, just go to California. We'll pay to get all the good people out of California that don't want to suffer under all that, and then we'll put a border around California, and then we'll let California secede from the union. That would be the best thing to happen. Uh, but it's not going to because we want to dump them everywhere, right? So. Um, and this is it goes back to the 1880s when Grover Cleveland and others uh, were opposed to the Statue of Liberty. Uh, one of the one of the main comments was, "We don't want America to be the dumping ground. We don't want it to seem that we just have an, an a, a open for business sign for everybody that wants to come in the United States uh, that doesn't have any. I mean, look, they don't have a job. There's not. We're just taking in people, and then all these people have to have to function in society. Well, how do you do that? You got to have jobs for them. You got to have places for these people to live. you got to have infrastructure to support all these people. And you can't I mean Washington said, I mean anytime you have a situation where you have a large numbers of people just dump into an area, it's going to change that area. So uh, Washington was aware of this. The founders were aware of this. They might have been interested in immigration, but you're not talking about the volume that you're looking at now. Uh, they, they did say, well, having people come to the United States, good people, merchants, artisans, people that can actually contribute to the U S that's a good thing. What they would what they did not want is the destitute from everywhere to come to the United States. So, because you can't absorb all that, right? So there's a difference. So if you're talking about movement, movement conservatives, I would say it'd be the 1980s that you see movement conservatism. Now, where are the intellectual forebears of all this, you know, forefathers of all this? I, that's, that's part of the question. So number one, he says, it would be, no, he said, number one is too simplistic. Yeah. I mean, look, when you look at Robert Taft, and he's talking about Robert Taft, the uh, U.S. senator, um, Robert Taft, in many ways, is considered to be an old right kind of individual. And there are a lot of people that like Robert Taft uh, on the old right. Uh, Robert Taft was certainly not interested in the New Deal. um, And you can say that during that New Deal period, um, you had uh, some even opposition from Democrats. You started seeing some of the Democrats uh, people like um, uh, Bailey and others, uh, some of the Democrats move into this kind of cons- this conservative movement kind of thing. Um, the conservative manifesto uh, is, is, the, is part of that, which came out in the late 1930s. Um, it was a, essentially a newspaper editorial that said, we've got this conservative manifesto and we're all going to sign on to it, all these congressmen, and this, the, the new deal's gone too far. That was about 1937. And uh, so, I mean, can you say that's the beginning of modern conservatism? Well, I mean, if you look at it simply that you're talking about neoconservatives, the New Deal's gone too far, perhaps. But I mean, you did have conservatives before that. Um, But the question is, what about the Republican Party? I would say that when you look at the idea that the Republican Party is conservative. This is the question. Is the Republican Party conservative? I think that's more to the question. Is the Republican Party conservative? The point you have to go to for that would be the William McKinley administration. And I've I've talked about this, um, I believe I did an episode on the 1896 election. But the William McKinley administration... Would be considered the point by which the at which the Republican Party was viewed as conservative, and that's because the Democrat Party shifted left with the selection of William Jennings Bryan as their candidate in 1896. Bryan had some elements of old traditional Democrat. I mean, look, he was a social conservative. This is a man that was a um, a devout evangelical Christian. Okay, I mean. He made his very famous cross of gold speech with the imagery in mind because that would appeal to these evangelical Christians. You're being nailed to a cross of gold. That religious imagery appealed to people. And, of course, Brian might have had a heart attack because of his offense of Christianity in the Scopes trial, right? So, I mean, there's there's speculation that trial killed him because of how he was so uh, viciously attacked by Clarence Darrow And the press, because of his position on uh, creation. So, uh, perhaps it's 1896, the Republican Party was seen as a safe haven for those who wanted a gold standard. They wanted to ensure that uh, that financial order was maintained. But you also had Democrats who refused to vote Republican in that election. They created their own party, the National Democratic Party, which was a gold party. It had a union veteran, John Palmer, as its president. Presidential candidate and a Confederate veteran Simon Bolivar Buckner as his vice presidential nominee. So it was a Union-Confederate ticket. It was a Cleveland-dominated party, meaning that uh, you know Grover Cleveland, who was uh, the last conservative Democrat to be elected president, you did have Alton Parker uh, run against Teddy Roosevelt in uh, in 1904, and uh, perhaps you know Alton Parker was the last gasp of the conservative Democrats. Um, so you've got, uh, you've got I would say, McKinley is when you start seeing the Republican Party viewed as conservative. Now, Teddy Roosevelt messes that up because Teddy Roosevelt is a progressive and he moves left. So the question about Jeffersonian and Hamiltonianism, where you see these terms fitting in, you had a book published by um, a man named Herbert Crowley entitled The Promise of American Life. This book came out in the early 20th century, and it is an important book to understand because Herbert Crowley was admired by Teddy Roosevelt. Herbert Crowley was admired by the progressives. Herbert Crowley essentially created the idea of, uh, created the the modern liberal movement. And what he did was say, you know what? We've got uh, Alexander Hamilton out there who's great on centralization, I mean, this guy is fantastic on the powers of the general government. He is our guy. But he's too elitist. I mean, Hamilton was not a, a leftist in, in that way. In social or I mean, Hamilton believed in a constitutional monarchy. Hamilton believed in, uh, in the elites running society. Uh, in terms of you know class, he was someone who believed in the rich merchant class. He was a big banker. I mean, this is this is what he wanted to do. Essentially, Hamilton was trying to conserve the British political, legal, and economic system in America. That's what he was doing with the Hamiltonian system. So in that way, Hamilton is a conservative. He's trying to conserve that order in America. And uh, he didn't like democracy. So Crowley was saying Hamilton's great on centralization, but he's terrible on all these other things. Jefferson is great on all those other things. Jefferson believed in democracy. Jefferson was kind of a reformer. Uh, The thing that they, but he was too interested in federalism. Jefferson uh, didn't like a strong central government. Jefferson uh, didn't, I mean, Jefferson was great on banking for the left. Jefferson was great on all those things. He didn't like, uh, but he didn't like a strong central authority. So what you have to do is put the two together. And that gives you modern liberalism. You get the aggressive reform mind and the central authority to put it in place. See, Jefferson didn't care about reforming Massachusetts. Jefferson didn't care about reforming South Carolina. Jefferson only cared about reforming Virginia. And so in that way, and I've done this, I've talked about Jefferson on this particular podcast before. In that way, Jefferson was on the left. I mean, people in Virginia thought Jefferson was on the left. But his vision stopped at his mountains. He didn't go beyond Virginia. Now, it would be great if people liked this idea, and they went and they did it on their own, but he wasn't going to force anybody through central control to do what he wanted. He was going to let federalism work its magic, and you could have it in your state or not have it in your state. I mean, this is when you talked about the letter to the Danbury Baptists. He was very open about this. Look, I mean, maybe one day freedom of religion will be extended to every state, but he's not going to say that the general government has any role in that, because it doesn't. I mean, they had it in Virginia, maybe they need it in Connecticut. But he wasn't going to say the general government could do it, because it couldn't, right? He was a realist on federalism. Jefferson was firmly committed to federalism. So uh, Hamilton, though, really didn't believe in federalism a whole lot. It's all about nationalism, central control. And so when you look at the modern progressives, I mean, this is where they get Herbert Crowley. So Teddy Roosevelt believed in that stuff, too. Teddy Roosevelt believed that the central authority, this this strong nationalism that Lincoln, of course— Believed in. We're going to force our agenda. And by force, of course, Lincoln really did it, right? He forced the reunification of the United States through violence, and then we're going to dominate the South. And the Republican Party in the Reconstruction period tried to enforce their will on the South. It didn't work well because Southerners resisted during Reconstruction. But, uh, and they they didn't get their way ultimately, and you had Republicans in the party were saying we can't do this. Right, a lot of these people that were that were resisting, maybe had been Whigs before, maybe had been uh, Democrats before. Uh, they weren't necessarily interested in this far left lurch of the Republican Party, um, even though I would say the Republican Party really hasn't changed a whole lot. But still, uh, you had uh, so you had Roosevelt kind of putting this his own. Republican Party spin on Herbert Crowley. Roosevelt's progressive. He adds in foreign policy to this. He says, look, I mean, yeah, this nationalism works. It works. We're going to, we're going to use the bully pulpit to enforce our will. It's our we're gonna we're gonna reform these big big banks, we're gonna reform big business, we're gonna, we're gonna take on these things, but only in a way. It's gonna be softer. So I would say, in many ways, modern the modern conservative movement actually has its origins in a fusion of Lincolnian and Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, nationalism. Um, because the modern conservatives are basically Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, John McCain said as much. Movement conservatives are Teddy Roosevelt. You could say that it's Bob Lafollette. I mean, where you have uh, these progressive reformers, and a lot of these neoconservatives kind of like Bob Lafollette too. But, um, and I've talked about uh, people like Charles Lindbergh, who was a Republican, uh, C.A. Lindbergh, not not the son, but the father, and how you had this kind of Midwestern Republicanism, which was agrarian in some ways. It was suspicious of the war power and big banks. And so that was kind of Jeffersonian. Um, that's an intro. I mean, if you want to read that, go read My Forgotten Conservatives in American History with Clyde Wilson. I have a chapter on that in there, C.A. Lindbergh the Lindberghs of Minnesota, and I've done a podcast on that. Go back. It's one of the earliest podcasts where I talked about this, uh, where I talked about the Lindberghs of Minnesota. So if you're interested in my position on that, go back and listen to that. I've got a lot of different episodes on this particular idea, but it's always good to answer these questions. So I would say modern conservatism, the modern movement, I mean, you have to look at the 80s, but then the intellectual forebears for that are Lincoln and, Ted- and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt, with his aggressive foreign policy, the, the Roosevelt Corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, big-stick diplomacy, um, certainly uh, that is a precursor to Wilsonian interventionism. And so, I mean, you have this shift with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you could say it happened with McKinley, too. McKinley was dragged into the Spanish-American War. McKinley wasn't necessarily an, an, an interventionist. Um, an imperialist, but many people in the party were. They were starting to push that position. And that began right after the war with people like William H. Seward and others who were interested in helping Cretan independence, for, for goodness sake. we got to help these people in Crete. <laughs> uh, so we're going to spread this this crusade to free people all around the world. We just did it with the South. We're going to make sure we remake everybody. We're going to remake the American Indian tribes. Gonna, and, I, and if you take my reconstruction and recreation course, Here's a plug for that. Take my reconstruction recreation course. I get into all that stuff, too. So um, that's at McClanahan Academy. So a lot of these questions can be answered in a variety of different places. I've done these things. But I think just to make a short answer, you got to look to uh, Roosevelt and Lincoln as the precursors to modern movement conservatism. And this is why they're so problematic. This is why I had both in my nine presidents who screwed up America. Uh, Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt because they are so dangerous, and conservatives should run away from them. What we need to do, and it's not really conservative or liberal and progressive or anything. So look, it comes down to this idea: think locally, act locally. Right? This is, it's federalism, it's federalism. Um, it's the idea that you sweep around your own back porch. It's the principles outlined in uh, the. State House Yard Speech by, by, uh, uh, by Wilson. It's the principles outlined in, uh, in the proponents of the Constitution when they said that the Constitution is not going to abuse its powers because the states hang on. It's the principles outlined in the Articles of Confederation. It's the principles outlined in the last paragraph of the Declaration. Think locally, act locally. We have independent states, free and independent states, and the only powers they delegated to the central authority were those that they had listed in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. Everything else is reserved to the states. So, I mean, but we need a commitment to that, a principled commitment to that. You can't worry about what happens anywhere outside of your state. Domestically, we can worry about foreign policy because, of course, that is a function of the general government. So if we've got somebody saying we're going to bomb Iran, we should all be worried about that. But if Massachusetts wants to implement universal health care, so what? If California wants to implement universal health care, so what? Let them. Unless you live in those states and fight like heck against it or move, you can vote with your feet. Uh, But we have to think locally and act locally. It has to be a commitment to that. That's the only way you're going to arrest this oppressive nationalism, whether it's conservative, quote unquote conservative or progressive or whatever term you want to use. We need to get away from the nationalism. That's the problem. It has to be federalism that wins the day. Think locally, act locally. If we can do that, we can get rid of this Lincolnian destruction of America. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.